welcome back from lunch. Is everyone from the hallway in? Did we get them? Did we rope them up? Yes, no? Duh, thank you for checking. Um, cool. So, guys, welcome back from lunch. Everyone enjoyed the first session? Yeah? Yeah. Thank you guys for being here, by the way. Thank you for staying, for those of you who stayed, and for the new people that came, like Nick. Um, yeah, the second part is starting now. Bye. Uh, everyone enjoy the pizza? Yeah. Right. Much better than Little Caesars because... Yes. Blah. Yeah, not a problem. Um, so, guys, we're just going to jump in. Um, so... Some of you guys know what we're talking about today. Um, this is a, a big question. Uh, it's a big question that people have not only within Christ or with out outside of Christianity, but also within Christianity. And it's this question of what happens to those people who have never heard about the gospel, who've never heard about Jesus, right? What happens to the, the man on the island or the, the tribesman in the forest? What happens if they never ha hear about Jesus? Are they going to go to hell because they haven't heard. All right, how many of you guys have, have ever had this question before? Ev almost everyone, if not? Okay. Um, so, yeah, this is this is a really prevalent question. This is a question that people have um, and have had for a very long time. Um, and so I just want to start off by setting the tone of, um, of our session by telling a story of one of my missionary heroes. Um, his name is Jim Elliott. Uh, you guys know who Jim Elliott is? Not yes, Jim Elliott. Yes. Um, so Jim Elliott and his wife were a young couple who decided that once they got married, they were going to go to <coughs> excuse me Ecuador. And so they get married. They fly down to Ecuador along with four other missionary couples, and their goal is to reach the lost people in the tribes and the jungles of Ecuador, right? And so um, they were there with four other missionary couples and. Some of the men, um, they, the men specifically were the ones that were like, we want to go in the jungle and we want to reach these people, right? And so Jim Elliott and one of the other men who was a pilot um, that d flew their supplies and whatnot, they were flying over the forest in an area that they, they had never been before. And they, as they're looking out, it's one of those little two-man planes, two-seater planes, they see a group of people in a very, very deep and um, hostile part of the jungle, and they're like, what in the world? Like, we've never seen these people before. And so they get back, and they ask some of the local believers. Um, they say, well, hey, you know, we saw this group, kind of described them, and the people get, like, freaked out. And they're like, oh, that's that group is the, they're called the Alcas, right? And they're this, like, violent, killer, like, primitive group of people. There's only about like 500 of them, and they, they're semi-nomadic. They live in these small little like groups of 20 or 30, and they're like, we stay away from them because they'll kill us, right? And so Jim Elliott and the other missionary men are like, oh, heck yeah. Like, that's who we came for. We want to go reach them. And so over the course of a year, it takes them a year to, to set up and to plan it and to figure out actually how to get in contact with them. And finally, after a year, they make contact. Um, and so I'm not going to finish the story. Not I wasn't doing that to tease you guys. Um, the, if you do want to know the rest of the story, uh, his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, writes in the book Through Gates of Splendor. Totally worth checking out. But the reason why I wanted to bring up this story of Jim Elliot and, and the Alcas is because oftentimes when we think of this question of the fate of the unreached, what we're thinking of are people like them, right? We're thinking, what about the people who who live so far, so deep in the forest? 
that they've never met a white person before. They've never met someone who knows about Jesus. How, what's going to happen to them, right? Or what, what about the person on the island that we don't even know exists, right? What about them? But the thing is, this is not actually representative of the lost, of the unreached. In fact, there are millions upon millions of people that have never heard about Jesus, right? you got to think, I mean, there's, there's millions upon millions of Muslims that have never heard the name of Jesus, and, and they, may, they may not get to in their government. Or there's, there's governments like North Korea and China even not too long ago where you couldn't be a Christian, let alone even say the name of Jesus, right? And so what happens to them? What is their faith? What is their eternal faith? What is the fate of the unreached, right? So this, this is our topic for today, as you know, the big question on the board. Um, and so it's my hope um, during this time to present as humbly and as honestly as I can what this book, the, the Bible, what the Bible has to say about this very real topic. Um, and before I jump in, I want to make two disclaimers. The first disclaimer is that this is a question that's primarily about the claims of Christianity, right? So it doesn't have to do with sociology or philosophy. It has to do with Christianity. And because it has to do with Christianity, the primary source is the Bible, the Bible is our primary source. It's where we're going to. And what I will say, um, if you don't have a high regard for the Bible, you're not going to like what I have to say. And even if you do have a high regard for the Bible, you still may not like what I have to say. But I challenge you to take this book seriously, to take seriously what God says in this book, and to really weigh out what it is he has to say to us. And the second disclaimer that I want to make is that this is not just a discussion of dogmas and doctrines and theology. This is a question that involves real people, very real people, and it, it involves eternal destinies, right? And so as such, it, it, would, be <laughs> it would behoove us to, to take a posture of humility as we talk about this. That's what I'm going to try to do, and just see what God has to say. And so with that, we're going to open up our Bibles. If you've got a Bible even on your phone. You should open it up, and we're going to go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Let me get there. I should have put a bookmark, but I didn't. So in Romans chapter 1, we're going to be camping today in Romans chapter 1 to chapter 3. Um, now, because there's a lot of reading between chapter 1 and chapter 3, I'm not going to read so much as we're going to see different stuff unfold. But I do, we'll give you just a quick overview of, of chapter 1, starting at verse 18. Um, so you can just kind of skim along and see. So typical of Paul, in all his letters, he starts with a greeting, and he's like, you know, I love you guys, I want to see you. And that's the first 16 and 17 verses, right? He's like, I want to see you guys, I love you guys. And then on a dime, ch uh, verse 18, he says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all of you, right? And he goes on this tirade where he's talking about the wrath of God because, because the, the people's wickedness and their sin. And he starts talking about how they've, you know, God has revealed himself to them, but they've just ignored it or they've pushed it away. And then they started to, you know, do all these terrible things. They were giving up God for, for these base um, immoralities. They started you know, trading relationships with men and women, natural relationships for unnatural ones. They started uh, approving of each other's sins. He goes and gives this huge long list 
I mean, like, the longest list I can see of different sins, sins I didn't even realize were sins, and he's just going on and on and on about all that the people are doing wrong, right? And then he concludes by s- in, in chapter 1 by saying, and the worst of all is that you approve of this. You guys are, like, patting each other on the back for all the sin you're doing. And it's, it's a pretty dark, a pretty heavy, um, not very hopeful message that Paul just on a dime switches on, right? And... What Paul is doing here is he's showing us that unless we are confronted with sin and its devastating consequences, we're not likely to even know that we need a Savior, right? So Paul is painting this dark picture so early on in Romans because he's like, listen, you got to get this in your head. you got to get this in your head. So context in the Bible is one of the most important things, knowing why this was written in the first place, rather than just assuming that it speaks to us, what did it mean for the original hearers? And so Paul is writing to a group of believers, some that were Gentiles and some that were Jews, right? And so what he's, what he's speaking on in Romans 1, chap- verses 18 to 32, is he's speaking to Gentiles, He's specifically speaking to Gentiles, he's, to the Gentile believers saying this is who you were, and he's speaking as a whole to the, st- the still unsaved Gentiles. And we know he's speaking to them because, well, the, the law is never mentioned throughout the entire entirety of these verses. Um, in chapter 2, we know there's a, a notable, notable shift to a different group of people. And then in chapter 3, Paul just outright says that I'm speaking to the Jews and the Gentiles, right? And so this is the part where he's speaking to the Gentiles. And now that we know the context, the reason that this is important for us is because, well, raise your hand here if you're a Jew, if you're Jewish. Okay, if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. Make sense? Like, pretty, the Bible is like, you're either Jewish or you're Gentile. And so we're all Gentiles, according to the Bible. And so, what the Bible has to say here, has to say to us too, right, not at the moment who we are right now, but who we were. Okay, and so... Paul is saying, um, he's writing to the Gentiles, he's writing to this group of people, and, and he's, he's got this really heavy message. But before we even get into the message, I think, honestly, this may be the most important thing I say right now, this, this whole session. What Paul is saying in this passage, he starts off by saying, this is a revelation from God. What he means is that this was not something that he came to by study or meditation or, or reading the Bible for a long time. What he is saying is that the very mouth of God spoke this to him. And the reason this is important is because if you look at all that's said today and you say, ah, well, that's just what Paul thinks, then it's, and it's easy to kind of just reason things away and say, well, that's just what he thought. But if we take seriously what Paul says here, that it's a revelation from God, then, then it's a totally different ballgame. We're looking at what God's words are rather than just what a man's word is. And so the revelation of God is a really cool thing. If you've never studied into to how God reveals himself and stuff, it's really cool. Um, and so I've got this little graph uh, right here. There's two kinds of revelation that God gives to man. There's general revelation and special revelation. Um, we're gonna, I'm not going to go deep into this right now because we're just going to unfold it as we go along. And so the general revelation, though, it's just it's what all humankind experiences, Jews and Gentiles alike, nature, history, providence, conscience, whereas special revelation is something that God gave specifically to the Jews, which is the Bible, prophecy, miracles, experience, and then Jesus himself. Um, now, what's just important to know 
is that when Paul is writing to the Gentiles here in Romans 1, he is speaking about a general revelation. A general revelation that all humankind knows about. And this general revelation that he's giving is the revelation of God's wrath. Now, God God was was pretty upset with the Gentiles. He was pretty angry with them. And Romans 1, verse 18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And so what we see here is that God's wrath is always in response to unrighteousness. Right? God's not sitting up in heaven all pissed off and angry and like, oh, they, they just do everything wrong. You know, like, he doesn't sit up there and just mope and, and get all angry, but his response to sin is nonetheless wrath. It, it's like what Jordan said earlier this semester that God's wrath is actually an expression of his love. Right? If he didn't hate sin and he didn't get angry at it, he wouldn't be holy or righteous. But. Because of his righteous nature, he resists sin and he opposes evil. So what we know is that, okay, God's mad at them, right? Like he starts off, he's like, the wrath of God. Like God's upset. But but what did the Gentiles do? Like why is God even mad at them in the first place? They don't even know him, right? Why, are they, why is he mad? Well, as we read through verse 18 through 32, we see that the Gentiles, they angered God because they rejected previous revelation that he had given them. In fact, they rejected it at least four different ways. And so the first way that the Gentiles rejected revelation from God was through their conscience. Verse 19 tells us that what may be known about God is plain to them. Right? These people, they they didn't know God, but what was to be known about him was plain. It was right there. Their conscience, the, the, the thing that tells you right and wrong, that there's something more than just this, that what we see and feel, God gave that to all man. And the Gentiles, he's saying that they knew enough to know that there was some higher power, but they refused to, to, to listen to that, to even give it a, a second thought, because they wanted to do what they wanted to do. The second way we see that they rejected revelation was that they rejected the revelation God gave through creation. This is verse 20, that God's inner qualities were understood from what had been made. Again, this goes in tandem with the conscience that God made us instinctively to know just when we look at nature that there's something more. This didn't just come about. There's some, there's some wonder and awe that comes in when we look at it. And there are many things that the Gentiles actually knew. This is, this is crazy. These are people that, that have never heard the name of Jesus. This is what they knew about God. They knew his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature, as verse 20 tells us. They knew his glory. They knew his truth. They knew his righteous decree. I mean, Paul is saying, listen, you didn't even know who Jesus was, but you knew these things about God. And because you know all these things about God, you are without excuse. Right? They knew God, verse 21 but they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, verse 25, knowing it, n- or not thinking it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, verse 28. They rejected the evidence for God that was clearly before their eyes. The third way that they rejected the revelation was that they rejected it by suppressing the truth that they had. This is verse 18. The Gentile, it says they suppressed the truth that was before them. Listen, like, 
If someone holds the truth before your eyes and you say, I just, I refuse to believe that. I refuse, I'm suppressing that. Then you're without excuse because you've seen it, right? And, and Paul is saying clearly that you have rejected the truth. And then the fourth way that they rejected revelation was that they exchanged the immortal God for images and idols. Verse 23 tells us this. They rejected their creator and turned around and created their own gods. Right, and it was—it's kind of funny because these images that they made just started degenerating and decaying, showing the true nature of what it was they worshipped. And so, what Paul is saying throughout Romans one, verses eighteen to thirty-two, is that ultimately the Gentiles—they had enough given to them by God through their conscience and through nature to know that He was real, but also that what He gave them was enough revealed to prove that they could not say they were innocent. They couldn't say they were innocent. They couldn't claim that they, well, I never knew God. They couldn't say that because there was too much of him already revealed through this general revelation. And so what we see Paul effectively saying is that the Gentiles are guilty. They're guilty before God. So then we move on to the next part of Romans, which is chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible, look at chapter 2. It follows chapter 1. Um, we're going to be going from chapter 2, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 8. This section, um, Paul is talking now to the Jews, right? And we know it's the Jews because in verse 17, he says, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, right? He's, he's talking to a new group of people, the Jewish people. Um, now the Jews, as I said, they were a people that were privileged when it came to Revelation, because they, ad, they had access to the law, and they knew God through special revelation. However, they wrongly assumed that because they had this special revelation, they were somehow better than everyone else, and they were more righteous. And so they're probably sitting there as, you know, someone's reading Paul's letter in, in Rome, and they're going, yeah, yeah, those Gentiles are getting it. And then it turns around, and he's like, you're also guilty and without excuse, and they're like, oh, it's like when your little brother and you got in trouble, but your parents were yelling at your brother, like, yeah. And then, like, I saw you do it, too, and you're like, oh, crap. <laughs> and, like, you, you run. Um, but that's what happened. The Jews, they were just as guilty as the Gentiles. And so just as, the, as what Paul had to say to the Gentiles was important to us, right, it also is important that what he has to say to the Jews, it, that's also important to us. Like, like none of y'all raise your hand. None of us are Jewish, but... What made a Jew different than a Gentile is that they had special revelation. And friends, every one of you has a Bible or has a phone that can get a Bible. And because of, because of that alone, you have special revelation that much of the world doesn't have. And so what Paul has to say to the Jews, he has to say to us as well, because we also have re- special revelation. And so, uh, so throughout this portion of Scripture... Paul is pointing out that high standards and good conduct, they're good, but, but they're not enough. They're not enough for, for what these people need. And so the Jews that Paul was addressing, they've become blinded by their privilege, and they don't even realize that they're just as bad as the people they're saying are bad. They're doing the same things that the people they're looking down on. And so God decides that he's going to show them their guilt. And so he pronounces another revelation And this is a revelation of divine judgment. And the divine judgment that we see throughout chapter 2 
is that um, it's a future judgment. And it's not just a judgment that the Jews will experience. This is, this is like judgment day judgment, like when we stand before God. This is the type of judgment. But Paul is using this to show the Jews that just as you think they're going to get judgment day, so will you. And so what we see as we go throughout Romans 2 is that there are seven principles of divine judgment. And they'll be coming up, and um, I'm just going to talk about each of them. So the first principle of divine judgment is that God's judgment is certain. We see this in in verse 3. Do you think you will escape from judgment? It is possible, in the way that our world is set up, to escape the judgment of humans. Whether it be you just run from the law or even standing before a court, we've seen people who get off on the most heinous crimes. Right? It's possible to escape the judgment of humans, but it is not possible to escape the judgment of God. Even those who consider themselves greater or or superior, they will also be judged. The second principle that we see is that God's judgment is universal. Verse 9 and 10 says, All will be judged, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Just as salvation... It's for everyone, which we saw in verse 16. Well, we didn't really see that, but if you go check, so too is judgment for everyone. Everyone universally will be judged. The third principle we see is that God's judgment is based on truth. I'm going to sound like a, a, rec- a repeating record, but Romans 2, too. Now we know that God's judgment against those who does such things is based on truth. People, we make mistakes in our judgment. The best of the best, the nicest, most (laughs) kind people make mistakes in their judgment, but God does not. His judgment is free of error because it is based on truth alone, and he alone knows all the truth. So God's judgment will be based on the truth. The fourth principle we see is that God's judgment is based on what a person does. God will give to each person according to what he has done, Romans 2 verse 6. Jesus taught this principle in what he called sowing and reaping, right? You will reap what you sow. Um, Paul talked about it. John talked about it. A bunch of the early writers of the Bible, they talked about this principle. And this principle does need to be understood correctly. It's not that um, your works will save you. But what your works are is they're a reflection of your faith. If you, if you believe in God and you stand before God and say, I believed in you, but you didn't do anything, then he's going to say, well, you didn't do anything for me. And if you don't believe in God and you did these wicked things, he's going to say, look at all these things you did, right? And so it's going to be based on what a person does. The fifth principle is that God's judgment is impartial. Romans 2.11 says that for God does not show favoritism. All throughout history, God has not showed favoritism. Moses said it. He said that God does not show partiality in Deuteronomy 10. Peter says Peter had to learn this lesson, as we're going to see later on. And, and James, James himself says, don't show favoritism to people, because if you do, you're sinning. God's judgment will be impartial. No one is going to get a special, a special you know, experience, and they're going to get out of certain things. The sixth principle we see is that God's judgment is based on light given. Romans 2.12 says, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. 
Now, this is this is an incredibly important principle. In my opinion, it may be one of the most important, and it may be one of the most contentious of these principles. It's it's where a lot of people say, "Well, this is this is where the answer could be." Now, God judges people according to light given or light received, right? And so, the greater the revelation of truth, the more responsibility and obligation you have to that truth, right? So. As we kind of see, that general revelation is given to everyone. So everyone has at least the light of the general revelation given of your conscience and nature. And then the Jews, they have even more because they have the law and they have the prophets and they have all these other things that add even more light to their plate. And so the Jew who had received the law, they had a greater opportunity than the Gentile, but it also meant they had more responsibility than the Gentile. And so although the Gentiles did not have the law, they didn't have this special revelation, Paul says that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, their thoughts now accusing and even defending them. That's verse 15. God revealed himself through creation and through our inner conscience. And what Paul is saying is that God is going to judge us based on whether we do something with that or suppress that. Here's a thought-provoking question. Do you think that those people who've never heard about Jesus, do you think that they can be saved by obeying the voice of their conscience? They never hear about Jesus, but they at least obey the voice of their conscience. Do you think they can be saved? How many say yes? Okay. How many say no? Yeah. Now think about this as a follow-up question. How many people do you suppose obey their conscience on every occasion without fail? None. Like I said, the best of the best make mistakes, and we, we don't obey our conscience, right? No one has been able to fully obey his or her conscience any more than a Jew could ever fully obey the law. Even if someone has been given the smallest, littlest sliver of light and for, you know, revelation, they are guilty if they don't obey it, if they don't do something with it. And man, even our you know tribesmen in the jungle or on the island, has received far more revelation of God than we tend to give credit for. God's judgment will be based on the light given and how we respond with the light given. And then the seventh principle is that God's judgment is through Jesus Christ. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus, as my gospel declares, verse 16. So what Paul is saying is that the Jews, they're no different. They're no different. That The sin that they committed would invoke the judgment of God just as much as the Gentiles' sin invoked the judgment of God. Even though the Jews had circumcision and the law and the prophets, they were no different in God's eyes. And Paul knew that the Jewish critics, the people hearing this, would be kind of squirming in their seats, a little upset. And rightly so, because they had a great, greater privilege. They had more that they were supposed to be responsible for, and now their conscience is attesting to them, saying, you haven't, you haven't done what you're supposed to. And the Jews, in the sight of God, they are guilty. They are guilty, and all of them were in need of a Savior. And so now we go to the final part, which is chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. I know there's more in chapter 3, but 
we're not going to go in there today. And so Paul transitions from talking to the Jews by saying this in verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we better than the Gentiles? To which he answers his own question with a resounding no, not at all. Paul's major emphasis here in verse 9 is that everyone, the entire human race, is guilty. Everyone is guilty. And Paul demonstrates that the Gentiles are guilty, as we saw in chapter 1. And then he demonstrates that the Jews are guilty. And then, just to make sure that we get it, just to make sure that we didn't miss what he's trying to say, he's like, listen, everyone is guilty. And Paul was a very smart man. Uh, If you've ever read into his life, he's a very smart man, a very fiery man. And he had the words of God to back him. And so he knew that many people would try and justify themselves and say, ah, well, I'm I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as them. To which in verse 19 he responds, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. What Paul is saying is that for the man who seeks to justify himself by relying on the law, he must therefore face the verdict of the law. If you're going to rely on the law, you've got to stand to the test of the law. And then Paul concludes in verse 20 by saying, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we, it is revealed. The, or, sorry, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The law lets us know what sin is, but it lacks the power to free us from sin's control. It serves as a mirror, not soap. It reveals the need, but not the means of cleansing. And in the same way, the Gentiles, or our man on the island, or the Muslim in the Middle East, or whoever, the unreached, they don't have the law, but they, if they seek to justify themselves based on their conscience or their goodness, then they too must face the verdict of their conscience or their goodness. And we all, we all came to the conclusion that no one, is, no one has ever obeyed their conscience. That's scary. You've got to stand the test of your conscience. The Jews had the law. The Gentiles had nature. And neither had the power to remove sin, only the means of revealing it. And what Paul was saying is that we need to have our sins removed elsewhere. What we need is a Savior. A little depressing, right? A little heavy. Very like, ugh, like a punch in the sand. I was going to tell a joke. It feels too heavy to make a joke. <laughs> Unless you want me to tell a joke to lighten it up. You want a joke? Okay. So why did Sally fall off the swing? Because she didn't have any arms. Knock, knock. Not Sally. <laughs> Poor Sally. There's apparently a third. Nick knows it. I don't, but I don't know. <laughs> okay, well, we'll leave that for another day because I don't know it. But, uh, okay, cool. So, little, little, little jitters out. Let me take a quick drink. So now, now it's time to start turning to a response, right? So if everyone is guilty of sin, then what happens to those who haven't heard, right? What, what happens if they haven't heard about Jesus? Like I said at the beginning, this is, a, this is one of the biggest questions that people have within and without of Christianity today, 
right? They say, how could God be called loving and good and send millions of people to hell just because they haven't heard about Jesus? How's that fair? And this is a question that demands an answer, in my opinion. I, I think it needs an answer. And so as I've studied and, and as God has revealed things to me, I've come to see that there are at, at least, this sounds like a lot, but there's at least 10 different responses. It's a lot. This is a big question. And we're going to go through these. They're fun. Um, yeah, but we're not going to, it's not going to be super long on them. Don't worry. Um, but each of these questions, um, I think only one of them holds up to what the Bible has to say. And so of these ten, eight of them fit into two overarching categories. And we'll see those. The other two are just kind of oddballs. Um, so we'll just start with the oddballs. So the first response that people can have to this question is an atheistic response. This response just says that when you die, that's it. Nothing. It's not super relevant to what we're talking about. But it is one of the responses that nothing happens. It doesn't matter. Right? The next response is what's called pluralism. Now, this response says that those who have never heard about Jesus may experience salvation as they understand it. Pluralism contends that all religions are right, that Christianity is not special, Christianity is not the only way, that all ways are the right ways. And even if they contradict themselves, who cares? Because as long as someone experiences salvation in the way they want, then they're going to go to heaven. So those are our oddballs. The next, the, the, the first major overarching category now is what's called inclusivism. And I'm going to explain inclusivism real quick. The idea of inclusive, inclusivism that I'm talking about is it, at the underlying foundation is what it's saying is that Christianity's view of, of heaven, of eter- eternal fate, is right, but there are a bunch of ways that you can get to the right way. Whereas pluralism says that Christianity is not the ultimate right one. They're all right, right? So this is what makes inclusivism different. So there's five different responses within inclusivism. The first is what's called universalism. This response says that everyone will ultimately and eventually be saved, that no one, no one will go to hell. No one. Even Some people even go so far as to say, even if you give it a billion, 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 billion years, even the devil is going to get saved. This is, what it, this is what universalism contends, that ultimately everyone will get to heaven. It, just does, it doesn't matter how long it takes, they'll get there. The next response, which is similar but different, is called post-mortem evangelism. Now this response says that those who have not, never heard the gospel in this life they will get a chance in the afterlife to respond to Jesus. This is where the idea of purgatory fits in, or, or if you've ever heard of Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, this is where this fits in. The reason it's different from universalism is because in this idea, you can still reject Jesus. It's just that the, the, the reason they contend, people contend for this is that, well, surely the love and justice of God would allow someone a chance, right? Um, and so that's where this holds, but... Even in the afterlife, you can still reject Jesus. That's what this view is saying. The next view is called world religions inclusivism. This response says that people can respond to God through general revelation of their religions. Since their religions contain certain parts of the truth of Christianity, right? And so uh, it holds that, that 
world religions, all world religions, Islam, Buddhism, Jainism, that they are all sufficient means that God can bring people to faith and that God actually uses other world religions to bring, the, the, the true parts of other religions, to bring people to him. Um, the next one is called general revelation inclusivism. This response says that people can respond to God through seeing enough of who he is in general revelation in, in the world around um, or through their conscience. It's about responding to the revelation that one has or the light given, however much or little it is. And it is believed that you can be saved by Jesus without ever knowing the name of Jesus. And that's where this idea, it's, it, it's different than the world religions one because it does not contend it does not say that other religions are the way God uses people to come. That God wants you to know him, but if you can't, then you'll be saved through other means. And then the final one in inclusivism, which from this point on is where historically the church has usually placed, it's one of these four. Um, and the seventh one, though, is called agnosticism. And there's two forms, pessimistic agnosticism and optimistic agnosticism. Um, this response just claims that ultimately we just can't know, right? We have a lot of evidence for one or the other, but we just can't know, right? Pessimistic says that there's a theoretical possibility that someone could be saved, but the Bible doesn't seem to warrant that, whereas optimistic is more like, well, I mean, God's really loving, so why wouldn't he? But but ultimately, I don't know, you know what I mean? So that's where agnosticism is just, I, I'm not, I really don't know. And then we move on to exclusivism. Exclusive, right? Exclusivity. Um, and so the first form that we see is what's called church exclusivism. This response holds that outside of being a part of the church, you can't be saved, right? There are still people today who hold some of these beliefs, um, some, some sects of the Catholic Church, some sects of the United Pentecostal Churches, all over the world, people say that if you're not a part of our denomination or our church, then you can't be saved. Um, most of this, this was very a very strong idea early on in church history. Not so much today, but it is still somewhat around today. The, the ninth response is what's called special revelation exclusivism. And this response holds that those who haven't heard about Jesus are doomed unless God chooses to send some form of special revelation, whether it be a dream or a vision or a miracle or an angel showing up in your bedroom. The emphasis on salvation is through special means, special revelation only, and it holds that while people are, in, while people are incapable of being outwardly saved, by the word of God, then God will step in and give something special, right? If they can't be reached, if you can't get into North Korea, then maybe God will, you know, do something special. And then the final response is what's called gospel exclusivism. This position holds that the only way to be saved is to hear the gospel message and to trust Jesus as a response. And it's this last one that I believe the Bible says is the only one that's right. Now, I'd love to go a lot deeper. I have a ton of stuff on all 
understand of those different responses, um, but we just don't have the time to go into why some of them don't hold up. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on why I believe gospel exclusivism is the right answer, the biblical response to this question. And so I'm going to give five major texts in the Bible that support this. There's a, there's a bunch more, but these are, these are five foundational texts on the belief of the, ex- of the gospel exclusivism answer, that, that Jesus, hearing the message of Jesus is the only way. And so the first verse or section of scripture that we're looking at is Romans 1, 18 through 23. We spent <laughs> enough time in Romans 1 earlier, but I'm coming back because many people will say that this verse lets us, tells us that someone can be saved if they just respond to revelation of of nature or of their conscience, right? And they say, well, that's enough. You can respond. But Paul, w- as we already saw, was saying, no, that's not enough. That's only enough to condemn you. It's only enough to tell you that you've, you're sinning. But it doesn't have enough to cleanse you, right? Though our man on the island knows God, verse 21 of Romans 1, he suppresses the truth, and he's without excuse. And so what we see is that humans, they're n- we're not guilty because we haven't heard about Jesus or the gospel, man is guilty because they have not honored and obeyed their creator. In other words, man is guilty not because of the absence of something, faith, but because of the presence of something else, rebellion. Man is guilty because they have rebelled against God. It's plain and simple. So, Will God condemn the innocent tribesman who's never heard about Christ? No, because ultimately there are no innocent tribesmen. Scripture simply does not paint fallen man as having some vague notions or noble desires for mercy and forgiveness. As much as we'd like to imagine that that lost people and the unreached are crying out for mercy what tends to happen is that they turn to these idolatrous folk religions where they're sacrificing animals and doing all these other things to try and earn God's love and God's mercy, and it undermines the very gospel of grace. People aren't crying out as much as we think they are. There's a really cool sermon by Paris Reedhead. He goes to Africa, and he's got this idea that Africa's needing him, and he gets there, and he said they don't even want to know God. He's, He's yelling a lot more intensely. But Charles Hodge, I think he says it best. He says, Though the revelation of God in his work is sufficient to render man inexcusable, it does not follow that it is sufficient to lead man, blinded by sin, to a saving knowledge of himself. Creation, all these things, they're not enough to save man. The next verse that I think is foundational, it's very self-explanatory, and it's, it's really hard to kind of argue this one down. Um, it's John fourteen six, and and Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is very clear. No one comes to the Father except through him. That's, that's I let you guys, if you want to argue that one, um, it's pretty tough. The next one, next verse, is also very self-explanatory and pretty hard to explain in a way. It's Acts 4.12, and it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name 
under heaven given among men by which they must be saved. It does not merely say that there's no other Savior. It goes one step further and says there's no other name under heaven. Jesus alone is the only name. Very, very clear. The next verse is Romans 10, verses 12 through 17. And it says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. So Paul's chain of logic runs like this. The only way to be saved is to call on Jesus. The only way to call on Jesus is to believe in the gospel. The only way to believe the gospel is to hear the gospel. And the only way to hear the gospel is to be told the gospel. Paul is saying, listen, people have to go. You have to go and tell people. It's they, they can't come to it without hearing it. The reality of another means of salvation besides faith in the word of Christ is difficult to find when, when you compare it to this passage. And then the final passage, which to me may be the most convincing passage, it's a long one, it's Acts 10, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 18. And it's the story of Peter and Cornelius. This is what I mentioned earlier with the favoritism thing. So what's happening is that Cornelius, he is a Roman centurion. He's a very powerful military man, and he's a Roman, but he believes in the God of Judaism. And in fact, it tells us that he is such a devout man that even the Jewish leaders at the synagogue are like, man, that's the, that's the dude. Like, he's better than all of us, right? And, it, and it's, he's actually so righteous in, in his lifestyle that an angel actually appears to him. Like, angels didn't appear to these dudes, but he appeared to Cornelius, and the angel gives Cornelius this, this incredible statement. Incredible statement. It's chapter 11, verse 13 and 14. It should be up here, and it says, this is what Cornelius is telling Peter when Peter has finally arrived. He says, he told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. In other words, the message that Peter was bringing, it was a, this message, it was a message without which Cornelius would have remained despite all of his religious sincerity. He would have remained eternally lost. And this story is crucial for two reasons. The first reason is that if a genuine believer exists, which I do believe there are many genuine, uh, sorry, genuine seekers. If a genuine unreached seeker exists, and I do believe there are many, why wouldn't we expect God to send someone to them? It kind of goes back to what I said. I th we, we have this mixed up idea that the r most of the world is crying out for mercy, but most of the world isn't. But if there is someone who is, why would we not expect God to send someone? He did here. And then the second reason, and to me th maybe the most convincing reason, is that because if ever there was a candidate in all of history who deserved to be saved based on general revelation and even special revelation apart from Jesus, it was Cornelius. 
This dude had angels showing up to him, special revelation. He had the word of God, right? He, he had all this general revelation. He was responding to it. And yet it says that Peter had to bring him a message by which he would be saved. He was devout and God-fearing. He had as much light as he could possibly receive. But as the chapter unfolds, it becomes clear that even extraordinary religious sincerity wasn't enough. It was necessary for Peter to get off his butt and to travel 30 miles to deliver a message to a man who, Scripture says, without which he would not have been saved. Peter had to go. This man, if anyone was willing, it was worthy to be saved apart from Jesus. It was Cornelius. But Peter had to go and tell him. So as we kind of summarize the content, what we've seen is that the scriptures point that man is ultimately guilty. They're guilty because they've rebelled against God. Man is not guilty because they have not heard about Jesus. They're guilty because they have, they have sinned against their creator. Rebellion and sin is the reason that any person goes to hell. Every one of us, I mean, we, deep down we know that we don't deserve heaven. We deserve hell because we've sinned. And that, that's the reason for hell. It's the reason you go to hell is because you've sinned, not because you haven't heard about Jesus. And what we also saw is that revelation, or sorry, salvation is based on a totally different thing than damnation. Salvation, according to the Bible, is about accepting Jesus and what he's done. Salvation and damnation are not based on the same thing in the kingdom of God. No one goes to hell because they haven't heard about Jesus. I'm, I'm going to say this over and over again. No one goes to hell because they haven't heard about Jesus. People go to hell because they've rebelled against God. So to answer the question of the fate of the unreached as simply and as plainly as I can, the fate of the unreached is that they will go to hell, not because they haven't heard about Jesus, but because they've rebelled against their creator. And the only way for them to be saved is to hear about Jesus and believe in him. So what's our response? If this is true, if gospel exclusivism is, if this idea that you have to bring the message to people, if that's really true, then how do we respond? Many people will say, well, I, I don't get how this is fair. I don't get how it's fair that Jesus could be the only way. It's, it's not fair that this is the only way to be saved. Why can't there be another way? Why? Why? That doesn't seem fair. But if there was another way, for people to get saved apart from Jesus, it would mean that the death and sacrifice of Jesus was utterly and completely insignificant. It was, a, it was a crime worse than it already was. He died for nothing if there's another way. And the reality is, guys, this is hard to swallow, but the reality is, is that if someone hasn't heard about Jesus, the fault is not on God's part. It's on the Christian's part. Jesus gave an explicit command 2,000 years ago to go into all of the world and to make disciples. And if people haven't heard, it's because Christians, myself included, have not taken seriously the command of Jesus. 
Jesus was very clear. <laughs> I mean, he said it four different times. There's five recordings of him, his Great Commission, but it was four different occasions that he said it. He was clear to take the message into the whole world, and yet for the most part, Christians haven't, haven't done what he said. There are, I'm not saying that as everyone hasn't, but a large majority have not taken this seriously. And though the news of this may be convicting, which I hope it is, it should be, it's not something that should discourage us, but in fact should spur us on to, to actually reconsider what Jesus said and whether we're going to take it seriously. It should cause us to go. And while some may contend that this puts too much responsibility on people and not enough on the sovereignty of God, the reality is that it doesn't. And it doesn't put too much dependency on human efforts because Scripture tells us that when we go, we go in Jesus' authority, we go by the leading of Jesus, we go with the words of Jesus and the Father, and we go in the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but that's a, that's a lot more Jesus than me that's going. When Jesus called all the Christians to go, he wasn't giving them some impossible task. He wasn't playing some sick joke on the world saying, ha, you're not going to, these guys are just going out for fun. They're not actually going to do it. He really did believe and still does believe that we can reach the entire world. And so in conclusion, many, many may say that or exclusivism of salvation being dependent upon Jesus and hearing the message is unfair or too hard or too limiting. And though it may feel that way sometimes, in the final analysis, we must honestly and humbly look at what God has revealed in His holy word. We must trust Him and take a posture of humility in response to what He has to say. After all, it's not, <laughs> it's not our place to subject the Creator to our limited and fallen notions of fairness. Our task is to take him at his word and to trust his heart. As, as Isaiah 55 says, his ways are higher and different than our ways. Psalm 119 and Roma, Romans 11 say that he needs no counselor for he is good and does good. And as Abraham once said, the judge of all the earth will do right. The most important thing that we can do when faced with this question is to open the word of God, to pray for humility and understanding, and then to embrace and live accordingly to what we see. And I pray for you guys that you would take this seriously. You would take seriously what the Bible has to say. Don't, don't just take at face value what I said today, whether you agreed or disagreed. But go and study for yourself. Go and listen to the podcast and dissect everything. Read the passages in full. Ask God to speak to you. And I believe that he will. I believe that he'll reveal himself to you. And that you will come to a conclusion similar to what we see today. And as you do, it will be your responsibility to respond accordingly and to take seriously what Jesus said. If what this Bible says is true, which I believe it is because I believe that God spoke it, then we have to respond accordingly. 
And I believe that, that, that Jesus does believe in us. He does believe that we can reach the world. It's just whether we're going to be obedient or not. With that, we can go to a time of Q and A. I know there's a lot more that I could have said. I also have some questions that I wrote down that if it's slow, then I can ask them to myself. But we have about 25 minutes for Q&A, so don't rush. Yes, again, in case you weren't here. Um, so if you have a question, you can come up to either side. Um, please speak into the mic clearly since this is being recorded. And um, stay up here so Sean can address you. Okay, I have like two questions sort of that kind of go hand in hand. So this is like a really popular question, but like what about like babies and little kids and stuff that like if they pass away really early on in their life, like what happens to them? And then my second question is like, is there like a certain, uh, how do I word this? Is there a certain age where like you're supposed to be like, not like held accountable but like expect it like like when you're older than that that's when like it's like okay like you're you should know about like the gospel and stuff like that like do you understand what I'm saying with the second question okay yeah those those questions actually tie in um there's this idea of what you what you said the age of accountability now there is the bible doesn't say it anywhere that there's a specific age at which you know you know, if you're eight years old from then on, you're, you know, now you're responsible. There's no set, hard, fast um, response in the Bible to that question. But the Bible does seem to, to illuminate this idea that, yes, there is a certain point when sin becomes a reality. When there is this response that there is, it's almost this age of innocence beforehand. Um, what's really cool, one of my one of my favorite verses in Isaiah, it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in knowledge. He grew in, he he had to learn right from wrong. And I know this may sound heretical and some people may get mad at me, but I think there was a point where Jesus was probably punching his brothers and, and doing stuff that wasn't the nicest thing. You know what I mean? Like what some people would say, well, he was getting angry at his brothers. Like, well, yeah, he was also a three-year-old and he doesn't know right and wrong. And I don't have a kid, but at least living next to Jordan and Katie and seeing Zoe, she she only knows something is wrong once someone tells her that she's wrong or she sees it in their emotion that they're upset. But she doesn't have it in her yet to understand that what I'm doing is right or wrong until it's been revealed to her. Now, if ten times she's been told, well, don't climb the couch, and she start, she even then... She knows she's not supposed to, but she doesn't yet understand the, the, the consequences. And, and even as humans, we don't really fully understand the consequences of our sin. But there is an age at which it's like, oh, 
I'm not supposed to do this because. You know what I mean? Like, right now, for Zoe, it's just, I'm not supposed to do this. I couldn't tell you why. You couldn't explain to her why. She couldn't explain it back to you. But there's a point where she re- she will realize, I can't do this because this, 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 and this. You know what I mean? And And so... You know, part of the reasons why in Catholicism they baptize babies is because they do believe that if that baby dies, it will go to hell. It it won't be with God because it wasn't baptized. But, I mean, the idea of baptism is that it's it's an outward expression of an inward faith, right? That that child didn't make that choice. The parents made it for them. But there's a point where, and and a lot of times you see it, I mean, the age of accountability, like I said, I mean, some people say they get they got saved at six, and they had enough at that point where they were okay. They're like, they made that choice themselves, and so from that point on, there's a certain point where it's like, okay, I get it, and now I'm responsible. But before that, the Bible seems to to kind of say that that they're like being taken care of by their parents, or they're being watched over, and they're learning just as Jesus had to learn. He learned right from wrong. It actually says that he learned right from wrong in Isaiah, which is really cool. Um, and so, yeah, I don't I don't think the Bible doesn't seem to paint that children without an understanding are are doomed. But at a certain point, once understanding comes that there like there's an accountability, then yeah, at that point, I do think that there is it's kind of scary. But we're responsible for what what little light we even have, and so um, if you get into you know kids with special needs, I don't I honestly don't know that answer. Um, I will say I don't know, but I'll just kind of throw that one on there. So does that help? Sorry. So basically, you're saying that like it has to do with kind of like the maturity of the child, like when they start to mature and start to understand. Like right from wrong, that's when it sets like sets in. Yeah, the Bible. I mean, the Bible is is clear that that there is there's two types of sin. There's sins of omission and sins of commission. A commission, something that you willingly did, and then there's sins where you're like, I didn't know that was a sin until God revealed it to me. Um, and in the Bible, m- and just in life, most 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 of what kids do, in one respect, you could look at what kind of what Zoe does and be like well that's sin it's like well no it's not she doesn't she doesn't know it, it's in in one sense she doesn't know and it's it may be bad that she's disobeying her parents but it's not it's not a willful I'm doing this maliciously because I want to do what I want to do like yeah in a sense that she's a child she's kind of self I mean babies you could you could look at a newborn baby and say it's selfish because it cries when it's hungry but that's kind of like Logically, it's like, well, that's not, it's not selfish. It's just a, it's just doing what a baby does. Um, and so, but there is a certain point where it becomes selfish. Charles and I read a book together, which we haven't talked about. <laughs> but a guy in there talks about a, a, a child. This is very gruesome, but he attacked his little baby brother because his uncle had told him, you know, mommy loves your baby brother more than you. And he went and attacked his little baby brother. And the guy says, well, that was sin because the child knew what he was doing. Now, that's a pretty intense situation, but there was willful, malicious intent that's different from, like, this omission that I just I really didn't know. 
right? And then, but at a certain point, like when you said maturity comes about, that people can't claim that that haven't heard about Jesus because there is enough. God has revealed himself in nature and through your conscience as you grow older where you can't say, well, I just didn't know. The response was that they actually suppressed and, and said, they, I mean, in their minds they didn't, they believed they didn't know, but they had suppressed it long before. And so, does that help? Yeah. Hello. Hello. Um, so my question, I wrote it down because I'm not very good at speaking. Um, so I know you talked about like another approach of like spef- uh, special revelation and stuff like that. But do you think that God and the Holy Spirit will intervene if we're disobedient and those people that we didn't reach because of our own sin, will, will they like just go to hell or will God like intervene? Beca- like, I don't know. Yeah. That's a really good question. I actually, it's really funny. In the f- spring, we had... Um, a missionary from the Middle East here, and we had like a session where he talked, and then we had Q and A, and he was like, "We got time for one more question," and I was super selfish, and I said, "I'm asking this question," and it's the same question you asked, but I asked it in this way. I said, and it was because I was studying this stuff at the time, and I asked him. I said, "From your experience being in the Middle East for a few years, I hear, I hear all these stories about Muslims who have dreams that Jesus appears to them wearing white." And he speaks to them. Sometimes he says, go and look for this book or go and meet this person. And I asked him, I said, do you ever see Muslims who had a dream or had an angel show up in their room or had a vision, do you ever see them w- as as mature believers? And he kind of was like, well, you know, and I was like, and then I, I further said it, I was like, do they ever walk with God? without ever meeting another Christian? And he was like, the honest answer is no. Jesus always intends for them to go find the Bible and then to go find someone to help illuminate it to them. And that's why I don't think special revelation, though it is partially true, I don't think it's enough by itself. Jesus, I mean, what (laughs) Paul, Paul is one of my favorite people in the Bible hands down one of my favorite people in the Bible. He may have had the craziest experience ever because Jesus literally stands in front of him, knocks him off his horse, and says, you are going to go and preach in all of the world for me. And then he blinds him, and then he says, but you're going to go find this guy, Ananias. And Paul, who was the 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 Pharisee of all Pharisees, the Jew of all Jews, the best Jew you could have ever gotten. He had the most knowledge, probably more than any one of his time. He was each studied under the, one of the greatest teachers. He knew the Torah inside and out. And he had to be led by another man to the feet of Jesus. He saw Jesus himself, and still he had to have someone open the gospel to him. And so... That goes back, though, to what I said where if there is a genuine seeker, it, wouldn't, it, w- it seems over and over and over again that Scripture always provides a person to come into their life. And so there's, there's some funny things in the Bible. Esther is probably my favorite book in the Old Testament. And at one point God says, if you don't do this, someone else is going to. I have this plan for you to do, but if you don't do this, someone else will. And so I do think that if 
if God spoke to you tonight and said, I need you to go to Borman Hall, and there's a girl on the fourth floor, and she's from Saudi Arabia, and she just had a dream, and you're like, nah, I'm good, God, and you don't go, then I believe God would probably say the same thing, where he's like, this is what I had for you, but if you don't do it, someone else will, because she wants to know me, and God would bring someone else. And that, that, that's what scripture time and time again seems to do with, with, with the people who are gen- Cornelius, Paul, these believers, uh, Apollos. Apollos was an insanely smart man, and he had to be humbled and led by some tent-making peasants to the feet of Jesus. And so I do think that Jesus will always provide a person, but I think that there is this, this he, Jesus didn't, doesn't have a plan B. It's us. There's no plan B, which is, Scary, but, yeah. So does that help? Okay, cool. Hello. Uh, hello? Hello. Okay, there you go. Make sure I did it right this time. Um, in Genesis 14, okay, so going off what you just said about, like, God's going to get someone else uh, makes me think of like uh, Abraham and Tara and how it said that Tara got up to leave the land of the Chaldeans and but he stopped. He stopped somewhere and then the Lord spoke to Abraham and he got up and left as if his father was spoken to, but he didn't listen. And so God went to the next, like what you said, but like a few chapters later, as Abraham is being faithful, there's um, in Genesis 14, there's the priest Melchizedek. And we don't know where he came from. And there's like no connection between like him and the Jews. Like it is like we don't know where he came from. We don't know where he's going. But Abraham meets him and recognizes that he's like a priest from God and then gives an offering to him. And I mean, if you're a priest of God, then you're doing something right. And so how is he like, how does that fit with everything that we've just said? Yeah, that's, I really like that question. And it's actually similar to one of the questions I wrote here, which I'm going to also say this question because it'll tack along is what about all those people in the Old Testament who never knew about Jesus? What, what was their, what was their lot? Were they just going to hell because they didn't know? Um, so, this is really cool. God has not left himself without without something to say on this. And so, in the Old Testament, and this goes right along with, and with Melchizedek specifically, God had given the people from the very beginning of time promises of the coming Savior. In fact, the very first people who ever lived, Adam and Eve, we're given a promise in Genesis 3 where God says her foot will crush the snake and her and her heel will be or the the seed of the woman is essentially the 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 foot would his foot would crush the snake's head and his heel would be bruised right and he and this this is a promise it's a prophecy of Jesus the one to come so from the very beginning of time man had at least one promise of a coming savior now, they didn't know the name of the Savior, but it was this promise that was where their salvation came from. In fact, it uh, says of Abraham that he was counted righteous because he believed in God. He had faith in the promises that God had given to him, 
his faith was counted as righteousness, right? He didn't know who the Savior was, but he put his faith in the, the, this nameless Savior that God had promised. And so Adam and Eve, they were given this promise, and they were also given a command to go and, and you know, make the earth habitable, to go and to spread. And, and a primary role was to, to continue on telling this promise to generation after generation after generation. And then there's more promises that we started to see. There's, I mean, some that are a lot harder to find, but Methuselah was a promise. Just his name alone was a promise, right? There was Enoch. His was a promise. His life was a promise of the coming Savior, what it was to look like. And we have all these promises over at Noah. I mean, he was a promise. This is all before the time of Melchizedek. And we also see in Scripture that there was what we call transgenerational discipleship, that Noah was discipled from Enoch down to him. There's only two people in the Bible that are called men who walked with God, and it's Enoch and Noah, and they never lived at the same time. So so people saw Enoch's life, and then they passed it down from generation to generation until Noah lived a life that the only other person in the Bible who was said that he lived a faithful life, who walked, faith, walked faithfully with God. And so what we start to see is that all these people they're responding to this promise that was passed down generation after generation after generation. And in Genesis 10, the whole world was split up, or Genesis 11. The whole world was split up, and they went all over the place. They were w- all at once, they were together, and then God confused the languages, and it says they went across the earth. And so for Melchizedek, what I believe is that Melchizedek had been one of those, like Noah, where generation after generation, someone was faithful to keeping that promise and said, man, way back at the beginning, God said that there would be a Savior, and that's who we, we've got to put our faith in him. And I believe that Melchizedek responded to it. If, if only it was the promise that Adam and Eve were given, then he responded to that, and he walked with God. And, and he walked in that way because he had a special revelation that wasn't written but was passed down generation after generation, and he responded to that promise and put his faith in that promise and lived his life according to that promise. So much so that Abraham looked at him and said, we gotta, we got to give to this guy. He's a priest of God. He is living. God is speaking to me. You know, I'm Abraham. God is speaking to me. And I can see that this guy is living up to God in the same way that I am. And it's based on this promise that was given from the beginning of time. Every person throughout the Old Testament, every person in all of human history as the Bible records it, has had at least one promise to go off of. And I believe they've had countless more that have been given as time has gone on. And so I I believe that Melchizedek responded to that promise just as all the saints of the Old Testament responded to the promises that were given to them, and they responded by having faith in that promise. So does that help? Do you have any follow-up questions? Sure. Um then why is that different today? Like, why is it, why can someone be faithful? Why could they be faithful for, okay, the time that they had, uh, even though their names are close together in the Bible, we're talking about uh, thousands of years. And so there's like a greater distance in some ways between like what's going, like Genesis is happening it's a couple thousand years in there at least, maybe longer. 
and then we're like 2,000 years removed from Jesus, like how is it that we can be like like 3,000 years from Moses and it's not good enough to believe in a promise with the little light that you have rather than like there being thousands of years in their context and it could be good enough to believe in a promise with the light that they had. Yeah. Romans 3 talks about it. Let me find it real quick. So in Romans 3, starting at verse 25, it says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith. And so Paul is talking about, he goes on after that to start talking about Abraham and Abraham's faith. And he's saying that up until the time of Jesus, he he had, he had in his forbearance, he had left these sins committed, unpunished, in the sense that they they their spe- they had a special in that time until Jesus came it was enough if they had faith in the promise but once Jesus came God said it's on a different level now I have revealed myself in the flesh he said he gave himself as a sacrifice he was presented as a sacrifice of atonement and he's saying cuz what he's saying here in in, ver- in chapter 3 is that there was a time that was different but now that Jesus has come now that his death has happened, now that his life has shown what my righteousness really looks like and I've made atonement, it is different now. And it, the response is now fully on him. I have revealed myself in my fullness. God revealed himself in the, f- the fullness of God was revealed in Christ. The fullness of his intent, the fullness of, of his response to sin was revealed in Jesus. And he says, now there was a time where I had, I had some extra forbearance, but now that Jesus has come, now that he's revealed all, this is the only response. And so for the, for the past 2,000 years, since Jesus, that's kind of where it came into the, we've, we've dropped the ball. Like, we have not done what he called us to do. And so for 2,000 years, people have been, I mean, at least what the Bible seems to say, going to hell. Because, I mean, this is just an interesting side note. I did some calculations on Google Maps, um, how long it would take to walk from Jerusalem to the edge of Russia to Thailand, or Bangkok, Thailand to Cape, uh, Cape Town, South Africa, the farthest places, about 8,000 miles is about the longest one. And if you walked for, I think, 25 miles a day to get to the other end, it would take you about 270 days. There was 5,000 people that were added to the church within the first, like, two days of the church. If if they had gone, I mean, this was the world back then. They could have gone to the farthest reaches of the world in less than a year and brought the gospel. But what we see in the Bible is that, I mean, Peter himself got got totally like slammed by Paul because he's like, "You won't even leave Jerusalem. You you won't go reach the mo- like you are you are the apostle Peter. You are the man. You are the man pretty much running the church, and you won't even go." And so it's just interesting that. Beforehand, God had some forbearance, but once Jesus came, he said, this is the only way, and you have to take him. And for 2,000 years, people have been like, I'm good. Like, I just, I'll just sit here. I'll, I'll just reach people where I'm at. I won't go. 
And so the world has continued to have generation after generation of unreached people because people didn't take seriously what Jesus said. Does that make sense? I know this is all heavy, guys. And I'm going to say it again as we come to a close because I see that our time is up. Please, please, open your Bible. Please take time and look at this. Don't, If you don't like what I said, don't just write it off and never come back. If you like what I said and it's convinced you, don't just run with it. You've got to take time and look at this and ask <laughs> first session we talked about the Holy Spirit another rule of the Holy Spirit is that he reveals truth to us reveals truth to us and I would encourage you to take time read through Roman, read through the whole book of Romans but if not anything Romans 1 through 3 and, and just ask God to reveal what he thinks about this you, you all have the freedom to just ignore what I say and and say that that's just too mean, or that's 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 far too limiting. But I really do believe that God loves to reveal His heart to us. He wants to reveal His heart to all of us, and and we just have to take the time. We have to be willing. I mean, honestly, I wanted to say this when I started. I forgot. Thank you guys for coming. I know it's a small group, but I really do believe that Jesus is going to to bless your lives. You guys. There's a lot of people who have these questions, and Jordan and I were kind of talking about it. It was surprising that so many of the people we know who asked the questions didn't come. But I do believe that because you came, Jesus will bless you. He loves people who seek after the truth. He loves people who seek after him. And I do believe that whatever you feel after both Jordan and Mai's talk today, that he will bless you for coming. And he will bless you as you take more time and you look at what Jordan had to say about the Holy Spirit, what I had to b say about the fate of the unreached. And so I just want to pray a blessing over you guys um, as we go. And uh, yeah, we'll be done with our first ever Peace in Theology. Jesus, thank you for everyone who came today, God. Thank you for enriching our lives, God, with your holy, holy word. And God, I pray that you would help us to be humble as we go back and we look at what you had to say about the Holy Spirit and what you have to say about the fate of the unreached, God. Would we be humble before you? Would we not put in our own ideas of what's right and what's fair and, and suppose that we somehow know better than you, God, but would we just sit at your feet and hear what you have to say and then, and then live accordingly, God? Lord, I pray for anyone who, who hasn't been filled with the Holy Spirit that tonight, God, today, that they would spend time praying that you would fill them, God, and, that they, and then I pray, God, that you would fill them, whether they speak in tongues, whether they, they don't, whether it's quiet. God, I pray you'd fill them with the Holy Spirit. And then, God, as you fill them with the Holy Spirit, as you fill others who have already been filled, refill them, God. Then would you equip us to go and to reach the unreached, we love you, Jesus. We thank you for the privilege of getting to know you. And we just pray this in your name. Amen.